We are continuing our sermon series going through uh, the Gospel of Mark, uh, looking at the life and ministry of Jesus on this earth. Uh, This morning we find ourselves in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 30. Uh, If you have a Bible, you can take a look in there. Uh, But before we we read, before we hear the God's word preached, let's, let's pray. Lord God, as we come to your word, we... We ask that we would do this with a seriousness, uh, because everything that you say is necessary. It's, it's uh, for our good. It is something that uh, we need to take seriously, uh, most of all because uh, this is the word from you, the eternal Lord. And so help us to be attentive as we listen. Uh, we pray that your spirit would be with us. We, we need your spirit blowing his fresh winds through here to bring us to life. Let us put aside our distractions as we hear and focus on what you have to say. Lord, we pray the same thing for uh, the man preaching here right now, uh, that uh, any distractions that are in his heart, you would be uh, removing from there uh, and forgive his sins just as much as you forgive everyone else's. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 30. Uh, This is the word of God. And Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, So that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. Who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit 
never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Amen. Well, all around you, there are two kingdoms that are in conflict with one another. And both sides are vying for dominion. Uh, This conflict manifests manifests itself all around you, in your workplaces, uh, where you live, in your neighborhoods, in this town. But it's not a conflict that is immediately visible or apparent. It's not between conservative or liberal policies. Uh, It's not between progressive or conservative cultural agendas. It's not a war that rages in the social institutions, in the schools, or for the heart of America. This is something that is much older than any of those modern American conflicts and one that runs exceedingly deeper than any of them. And frankly, is more important than any of those. This is a conflict from the very earliest days of human history. A one that began at a tree in a garden involving the first two people and a serpent. Adam and Eve and Satan. And though it involves humanity, it's ultimately a conflict between God and that serpent. Between Satan and God. The God who made a promise and who always keeps his promises. While Satan tempted our first parents into sinning and plunging the world into sin and death, God pronounced that there would be enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And the offspring of the woman... Namely, one offspring, a son, would crush the serpent and bring an end to his dominion over humanity. And this is the age-old conflict that we all find ourselves in. A conflict between God and the serpent. Between Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man, and Satan. It's a cosmic conflict. It's unseen, but it manifests itself at times in the hearts and lives of humanity. But because it's spiritual, we often forget about it raging invisibly all around us. It's often described in terms that make it sound quite Pentecostal, which some of us brace against for, for certain reasons. But more often than not, we don't just see the world through this lens. We're more products of our modern empirical scientific minds and heritage than uh, that has to see to believe than we really think that we would like to be. And those of us who are even more aware of this conflict than others, we often forget the scope of it. We forget how big it is. We tend to think that this conflict generally takes place in far-off lands that are rife with paganism and belief in magic. And if it is here, then it's in the streets of the godless cities or among certain populations. And of course, if it is here, how are we to engage in this conflict? What are the tools that we've been given? How do we use them? Well, we see Jesus engaging in this conflict. The Son of God rising up against Satan and expelling the kingdom of darkness in the world. And this is no easy task. It's a cosmic, universal battle. And there are three aspects to this conflict that we'll look at in this passage. There are difficulties that that might cause us to want to give up at times. Because we look at it and we see the mission is enormous. Oh, we see that the hostility is fierce. And we see that the warfare is spiritual. But for all of these, though, Jesus answers them all with hope for people like us 
who are also caught up in the conflict. So the first one we're going to look at here, the mission is enormous, but the hope is that Jesus sends disciples. The mission is enormous, but Jesus sends disciples. And Jesus' ministry has been taking the region by storm. Again, this, we're only in the end of the third chapter of Mark, but we've seen that over and over. And we see that here even. This great crowd has been following him in verses 7 and 8. A crowd of, of people from all over. This crowd has reached a new height of its size and diversity. It's no longer just a regional movement in the area immediately around Galilee in northern Palestine. It's extended, first of all, into uh, the main province and the capital, into J Judea and Jerusalem. And it's gone beyond the traditional borders also of, of, that people would have thought of about these traditional Jewish lands. It went into Idumea in the south, the territories east of the Jordan River, and even up into Tyre and Sidon in the north. Now, some of these places weren't just strictly Jewish, but they had a considerable Gentile influence there. And so this crowd is semi-international, and this semi-international crowd of people has been following Jesus around. And when we look at this crowd, we begin to see new shades of Jesus' ministry and of his mission. These are cultural outsiders who are brought into his followers, and, and, and he doesn't send them away. His ministry is starting to take on, again, this international flavor to it. Already it's revealing a fuller scope of Jesus' mission, not just to one people group or not just to a few peoples, but it goes worldwide. The crowds that are following him are in anticipation of this fuller global mission that Jesus intended his ministry and his kingdom to be. Right here from these early stages, we see Jesus' desire for the mission and the makeup of the church. For it to be a people who are unbound by geographic or by cultural limitations. And now consider where we live here in Oregon. Jesus' mission was intended to be international. His kingdom to go forth to the, the reaches and the ends of the earth. But in his day, no one in that cultural world even knew that there were continents across the Atlantic. Let alone Oregon. Our international for them was across the Mediterranean, or it was further up into central and northern Europe, or down into, into northern Africa. All right, we think of the ends of the earth being these places that are far off from us, in lost islands in the Pacific, or in these tribes deep into the heart of Africa. But have we ever considered that we're the ends of the earth? All right, perhaps we'd view ourselves with a little more humility, right? But more importantly, Jesus' mission going worldwide means that it came here. Right? It's because of that crowd here that we read, here we are. It's miraculous that, that the gospel has taken root right here. The mission field isn't just foreign, it's here in our community. Is this the way that you look at Newburgh? As you look at your neighbors, as you live in your neighborhoods... As you look at your coworkers, as you go to school, as you walk the halls of Friends View, you're living and you're serving in the ends of the earth. Now, Jesus knows the nature of his kingdom, and he knows the international scope of this mission here, but he also knows that he's just one man. 
And he wants all the nations and all the peoples to know him and to be brought into his kingdom. All right, but even if he had all the time in the world, which he does, by the way, because he's you know, the son of God, the magnitude still of the field is just too big for one harvester. And he's not content to just limit his reach to one area. He came to save sinners. He came to bring restoration to broken lives. And he wants his reconciling work to have a reach which goes much further. And so he extends his mission by calling and sending other disciples in verses 13 and 14. Now, it's not often that we think about disciples in this way, but part of his call upon them was because of his love. He loves the world. He loves lost, broken, sinful people. And so, so much that he sends others to also bring his message of salvation and of hope. Now, we'll look more at the, the makeup of the, the disciples next week. But for now, though, let's consider something here that we often overlook. He calls 12. He calls 12 disciples. And that's not accidental. That's not, an in, that's not some insignificant detail it has a profound meaning to what Jesus intends to do. The 12 disciples brings to mind the 12 tribes of Israel, the old covenant people of God. And the 12 tribes of Israel had at their head 12 brothers, 12 individuals that were set aside by God for the establishment of his people. But Jesus came to bring something new. He came to bring a new covenant that isn't focused on the old Jewish customs, but a new people which includes both Jews and Gentiles. And as Jesus calls these 12 disciples, he's reestablishing the people of God. He's pulling it up from its Jewish cultural roots, and he is making it one that reflects his kingdom, this international flavor to it, and that forms the basis of his church. His call upon disciples then is to send them out on, the, on his behalf. He gives them a mission. And that's what he does with the church. He calls us and he gives us a mission. The church is at its heart a missionary people, whether we realize it or not. And Jesus' call, uh, his call uh, for his purposes here, or his call for us for his purposes is to further his cause and to work then for his, this multi-ethnic worldwide kingdom. And he has two specifics in calling them and in calling us, which we see in verses 14 and 15. The first is to be with him. Right? He calls them to be with him. He calls us to, to be with him, to spend time with him. All right, what he's doing here is he's putting them in this intentional discipleship program. They're going to learn from him by observation. He's going to change them and he's going to show them his ways by bringing them close to him. And this would later be one of the identifiers of the, 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 uh, the 12 after Jesus' resurrection. In Acts 4, it says that others recognized them by the time that they had spent with Jesus. And as the church, this is part of being a disciple. It's being with Jesus. It's spending time with him. He calls us to commune with him so that we will know him and that we'll be like him. Right? The Apostle Paul describes us as being the aroma of Christ in 2 Corinthians 2. The more time that we spend with him, the more his scent and his aroma sticks to us. And others, when they're around us, start to know his sweet smell. When I was a teenager, I spent a lot of time in high school at the bowling alley. Uh, and my parents, not that I was a good bowler, there was just nothing to do in a smaller town where I lived. 
And my parents, though, knew that always I had spent my Saturday night at the bowling alley because I'd come home and I'd smell like the cigarette smoke that filled the halls of, 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 of the bowling alley. The smoke hung on my clothes, uh, in my hair. I walk home and they'd instantly know you were at the bowling alley tonight, weren't you? But see, the more we spend, the more time that we spend with Jesus, the more of his aroma clings to us. So that wherever we go, people start to smell the sweet aroma of Jesus. They begin to get whiffs of him in how we talk, in the ways that we react, in the grace that we show. It's all part of the aroma of Christ when we spend time with him and his ways slowly become ours. But Jesus doesn't just call them to spend time with him. The other part of his call is he sends them. And specifically he sends them, it says, to preach and to cast out demons. If you've been with us lately in Mark, that's how much of Jesus' ministry has been. He preaches good news. He liberates people from the evil of spiritual forces then. And so as Jesus sends out his disciples, they're to go out and to continue his mission. They're, to, they're acting in his name. They're to preach in his name. They're to cast out demons in his name. They're just doing the same thing that Jesus has been doing. But with his authority that's been delegated to them. And as the church built, as the church then built upon these disciples, we see that we also are sent. We are sent in his name. We operate not with our own authority, but under him and bearing his authority. And that means we better be careful in what we're doing in his name then. He came to bring good news to the poor and, and, and to sinners and to demonstrate the power of his kingdom. And that's what he wants his name associated with. Not anything else that we might attach to it, but with building his church. Now, both parts of, of, of this call, both of the, the communing, spending time with him, and both being sent by him, both are vital for us as a church. Both aspects of this are necessary. And because if we emphasize only being with Jesus and only communing with him, that makes us merely a worshiping community. And when that happens, we become insular and ingrown and ineffective. But emphasizing only being sent out can burn, burn us out as well. We go, go, go for Jesus, but we don't spend any time with him and we grow weary. And is there one that you gravitate more towards the other? It's okay to admit it. Many of us do. Let's just be honest and let's recognize it. But both are being part of the church. We gather and worship and we commune with Jesus. We encounter him through his word and we speak to him in prayer. We know him better of his love and of his redeeming work. And that's why then, that's what we extend to others. We then want others to also see and know this Jesus as we have known him. And our time with him then is what refreshes us and it keeps the wind in our sails as we continue to go forth as his missionary people. The scope is big, we see that. But the second here, the second challenge we see is the hostility is fierce. The hostility is fierce, but Jesus has bound the enemy. Uh, we can all think of times when we've entered into something uh, that we knew was going to be difficult ahead of time. But we really didn't know how difficult it would be. Whether it's taking on a new activity, starting college, uh, navigating life with 
new jobs or uh, marriage or parenthood. The same thing, though, applies to being a disciple. It's hard. And it's not easy to be like Jesus, as beautiful as it is. It's not easy to follow him if you take his call seriously. To make matters worse, though, there's hostility that's involved. Uh, being sent on a mission in Jesus' name can sometimes sound exhilarating or like has a certain romance to it. But that's usually not the case because we run up against the hostility of unbelief. And Jesus himself faced this sort of unbelieving hostility from people all around him. Not only to those who were opposed to him, but even from his closest relations. Verses 20 and 21. His own family tries to rein him in because think he's gone crazy. Those who knew him well, his brothers, his sisters, his cousins who he grew up with, they're unwilling to believe. I'm sure growing up with Jesus wasn't easy. They always knew that there was something off with him. He's the only perfect kid who never sinned. And now here's confirmation in their minds that something was amiss. But even though Jesus is divine, he's also truly man. And like any man, he felt a sorrow that comes from rejection. He knows that as well as any of us do. Also, though, in verses 22 and following, we also have more hostility uh, of unbelief. But here it's opposition that comes from the institutions around him. The scribes come and, and say that he must be demon-possessed or be filled with Satan, and they're working, he's working according to satanic power in order to cast out the demons. And that's incredible enough, but these scribes came from Jerusalem. They came from the religious center. This is one thing to be lied about by those who, who are in your own territory, but it's entirely different when it comes from those from the central office. And if you follow Jesus, expect there to be hostility. It's not always the way that we like it to sound. Sometimes it's painful. It might cost you some of your closest relationships. And that hurts. Other times it might be disheartening, as it feels as if the whole world is stacked against you. These are just the regular expectations of discipleship. It happened to Jesus. It's going to happen to us. Don't be surprised when it comes to you. But Jesus knows what it's like. He's experienced it all the same. He knows what it's like to be slandered. He knows what it's like to be silenced. He knows whatever it else, what it's like that you may meet. And he's sympathetic to you in those times. And, in, and he's sympathetic in your sufferings and the hostilities in a ways that only someone who, who knows what it feels like can walk alongside you and who can carry you. And that's part of why it's so good that he calls us to also be with him and not just to be sent. Because it's where he also wraps his arms around us to commune with him in his love when you are feeling the crush of rejection or of hardship. The hope among all, amid all this here, though, is that Jesus has bound the enemy. Right? His response to the scribes in verses 23 and following, it shows not only how illogical their own accusations were, but it provides him an opportunity to pull the curtain back on what he's doing. He says a kingdom or a house can't stand if there's division and rival factions within it. And the same thing goes for Satan here. If Jesus was really casting out demons by Satan's power, 
then there would be rivals warring against each other. And if that were the case, then Satan would already be defeated and his kingdom would already be falling right there from that. But indeed, indeed his kingdom is falling, though. Not because of a rival faction at work, but by a stronger power coming in and pulling it down. The power of God in Jesus Christ. He's come to conquer and he means business. Jesus is bringing to fruition that promise made by God to humanity at the tree. He's coming to crush the serpent and bring his power to an end. And he does so, as he says in verse 27, by binding the strong man, so to speak. Now to enter someone's house and plunder the goods, you've got to bind up the strong man. You've got to neutralize him. And then the place is yours. Jesus came to bind the strong man. He came to bind Satan so that then he could then plunder his house and carry off all his treasures. But not treasures of silver or of good or of priceless objects. Treasures made in God's image. People who are priceless to him. Trophies of his affection and of his grace who he loved enough to die for and to set free. As Jesus was casting out the demons, he was showing that Satan indeed was being bound. And his power was coming to an end in this world. And his kingdom of darkness was crumbling before the brilliance of light that was piercing into the shadows. Jesus came to liberate real people from the grip of Satan's power and to bring them into freedom of his life. Real people he, did, he brought this to. Real people like you and me. And spiritual warfare is real. It's happening all around us in the unseen, invisible realms. Again, there are real people who are bound by Satan's power and who have been deluded by his lies that living apart from God and under the illusion of autonomy is the way to go. People are in bondage everywhere. And there are even plenty of people here in Newburgh that are slaves to Satan. Now, aren't people in bondage to Satan like addicts or perverts or anyone else like that or those running amok through the streets of down, downtown portland but here in newburgh but satan's the father of lies and often his enslaving and deluding power is among those who we think and consider to be nice hard-working folk living for themselves thinking that they're okay and who are blind to their own sins and bondage who have been deluded and enslaved, their ideal of self. It just looks a little more socially acceptable. The great Presbyterian minister, uh, D.G. Barnhouse, had a remark in a sermon once during his ministry, which much of it took place in the post-World War II boom of the United States. And he asked his congregation, what does a town under the control of Satan look like? You could imagine it being some sort of like, almost like a post-apocalyptic city or of this rundown place where anarchy reigns and crime abounds. But his description was a peaceful town with clean houses and white, clean white picket fences all around them, a town filled with churches and those churches being packed full of people where Jesus Christ was not being proclaimed. Don't be misled. There are plenty of people in this town who are in bondage. 
And it isn't any less here just because of the social conditions or the middle class families. Or even the proliferation of churches. But the good news for you and me is though that even though we are sent, Jesus has bound the strong man. Satan is rendered ineffective and his kingdom of darkness is falling right now. Because even though Jesus was casting out demons and storming the gates, his most crucial blow was dealt at the cross. Where he himself took the crushing blow. But as Jesus was crucified, he took the sins of his people and he freed them from them. And so Satan no longer has any power to accuse us in Christ or to lie about our sins uh, in some sort of definitive way. And the resurrection brings us into new life. We are brought out of death and decay and bondage and now brought into new life in Christ. And when we engage in the mission that he's given us, we're working in his name. Or rather, he's working through us to plunder Satan's kingdom. He's claiming trophies of grace, just as we ourselves are. And when we encounter terrible hostility and painful disappointments, we can still be confident that the war is already won. Satan is bound and the gospel goes forth. But the third, the third aspect of this that's difficult is that the war is spiritual. The war is spiritual, but Jesus has given us the spirit. And he shows us that this is a spiritual conflict as he does battle with the demons, as we've seen. He casts them out as he does so. He breaks the power of evil, holding sway over these people. And again, the cross is the defeat of Satan and his binding, which is ours even right now. But then this is more the spiritual conflict and the, the, the Jesus giving us his spirit is brought out more in verses 28 and 30. Where Jesus tells the scribes about what we refer to as the unforgivable sin. And there's a lot of questions about this, so let's, let's take a look here. The religious leaders here were claiming about, that Jesus was working his power and casting out the demons by the power of Satan. Now not only is that clearly untrue, there's also something much deeper and more deadly which their claims reveal about their hearts. Jesus' the son wasn't only doing his work according to his power, he was also working with the, with the power of the Holy Spirit. At the baptism, at his baptism, the Spirit came down upon him and he went out in the Spirit to engage with the powers of darkness and to bring good news. Redemption being worked out in the world was a Trinitarian act through the Son sent by the Father and the Son was equipped by the Spirit. So what the scribes were doing here was denying the clear work of the Spirit and attributing it to the work of Satan. In other words, this sin referred to is deliberately attributing Jesus' Jesus's redemption not by the work of the Holy Spirit, but by Satan. Now think of it in these serious terms. He's saying that the work of God himself to redeem, or it's, sorry, not he, it, <laughs> You're taking that, 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 that word there. It's saying here that the work of God himself to redeem is actually the work of Satan. It's calling God's actions those of the devil. That's the most blasphemous form of rejection. And that's why Jesus says it's unforgivable. 
all other sins for those who are in Christ are, thank God, they are covered by his blood. And that's a fact, a truth that we hold dearly to. But deliberately and stubbornly rejecting the testimony of God and saying that the Spirit's work is actually evil, Jesus says will not be. Not because Jesus can't forgive sins. Not because that one I'm just unable to. But because it has... That sort of unbelief has pushed Jesus aside and refused him in the worst manifestation possible of unbelief. This might sound like something that's done by people in the, in the occult, most likely here, but who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to the religious people. In fact, it has, it presupposes, it requires a knowledge of God and of what he's done, and yet it still rejects him for what he's done. Now those of very tender conscience are often troubled. Have I committed this sin? Have I committed this unforgivable sin? But don't focus on that. Instead, focus on remaining in Christ and loving him because that's the indication of your heart. And nor do I believe that this is a one and done instance like, oh, I did it and now it's, I'm absolutely unforgiven. It's all out of my reach but I think that this is an ongoing and a continual rejection. Because after all, it seems that the Apostle Paul, during his Pharisee years, did this as he persecuted the church. But what did God do? He changed his heart. So the focus for us isn't to get worked up on whether or not I've committed it, but rather to focus on Jesus, love Jesus, and remain in your abiding love in Jesus. But here's the important and relevant point for us to not miss as it applies to the, the deeper part of this sermon here. The scribes were misattributing the power at work through Jesus, namely the Spirit. Because Jesus was performing his work of redemption by the means of the Spirit. And he continues then to advance his work through the Spirit and through the same means of the Spirit that he's given to us. He has poured out the Spirit upon us at Pentecost. The church is indwelled and empowered by the Spirit. And so we are then also equipped and armed to do battle with the spiritual forces sent by Jesus and given the same Spirit. Jesus continues to break down strongholds and to soften sinners' hearts as the Spirit goes forth. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it because the Spirit of God resides in us and he has power. You are sent out on a mission that encompasses the whole world. You're sent out to face hostilities. You're sent amid intense spiritual warfare. But you are not left alone. You have the very Spirit of God with you and equipping you to do battle against the forces of darkness. When the Spirit bursts forth from us, uh, uh, things happen. Lives are renewed. Forgiveness is given. Hearts are mended. People are reconciled. And people are liberated from the grip of Satan and from his power. And so how do we unleash the Spirit? Well, we work through the means of Christ. The means given to us that Jesus also gave us here. Which is the word and prayer. Do you ever wonder why the word of God is called the sword of the spirit? Because that's the means by which we use, uh, that's the means by which uh, the spirit um, goes forth from, from God and sets people free. When the word goes forth, 
not only on Sunday mornings here, but spoken in your everyday conversations, when it's read among believers and unbelievers alike, things happen. The Spirit works. And we also pray in the Spirit. We're dealing with the power of God that we cannot fully comprehend. And yet as we pray, we ask that His kingdom would come and break through. The spiritual warfare sometimes sounds confusing, but let's not make this any more complicated than it needs to be. Do you realize the power of those means that we yield or that we wield? It takes the focus away from ourselves and our own abilities, thank God, and it brings us to trust in the Spirit to accomplish His work. And this is such good news for weak people like me and like you who don't have, always have the ability or the know-how to go about these things anyways. See, we don't need to be particularly strong on our own in the fight. Because Jesus is strong and because he's given us a spirit who is also strong. And so let's take up our task, following the call, remembering that we too have been liberated and brandishing the means of the spirit. We engage in spiritual conflict, but always under the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ who gave, who not only sent us, but who gave himself up for us. Let's pray. Lord God, you have called us to the spiritual battle which rages all around us. The unseen conflict between your kingdom and the kingdom of this world. And though that seems daunting to us because we can't always even see it. We still though are confident though because Jesus has won. That his crushing upon the cross was the crushing of the serpent's head. And his power, because of the cross, is coming to an end. And so as you call us and as you send us to go out as your people into the world, as you make us this missionary people, we pray that you would give us a renewed sense of its call, of what it entails, of the realities of what we can expect but also the fact that we are going in the name and the power of Jesus. And we also do not go alone. We are not just sent on our own, but we have Christ Jesus, our captain, who also calls us to be with him and to commune with him. And so we never go forth alone, but we always go with him. And we thank you for that, because that is what we need. Impress that upon our hearts and our lives. Impress that upon our minds as we go out. In Jesus' name, amen.